0: Ari I'm here with another fun-filled episode of That 401k Podcast. This week's topic, we're going to talk about plan sponsors' guide to hiring a financial advisor, things that plan sponsors have to look forward to uh, when selecting a financial advisor, and the nonsense that goes along with it. Um, and of course, first things first, that 401 site.com for further information on all our live events. Uh, we're having a virtual event January 26th, 27th. Uh, $2.23 to join up. We're signing people left and right um, as uh, attendees uh, and then, of course, as, as sponsors of this event. But should be a lot of fun. Uh, two days, uh, like last year and the year before that. Um, a lot of you know interesting presentations and whatnot, so I'm, I'm certainly uh, looking forward to that. And then, of course... Um, live events, uh, we just put up uh, on the website uh, the April 14th Oakland Conference, Oakland, California. That one time we will get to the Bay Area. Uh, been looking for years to get to the Bay Area. Pricing just didn't work out for San Francisco and Santa Clara, um, and we will be in Oakland, California. Uh, enjoy it while it lasts. Cause I still believe the Oakland athletics will move to Las Vegas within a couple of years. And that will give us a great venue for a Las Vegas event. Three to 40 years down the line. Um, if we should have our health and all that kind of stuff, go to that 4k site.com for information. Uh, be game tickets that day against the Oakland A's, uh, Oakland A's. Yes. Oakland A's against the New York Mets. Sorry. Um, Pretty soon, we're going to have the May 3rd event in Detroit up for people who want to be a part of that one. We're going to book the date for Arlington, Texas for sometime, I want to say, late May before Memorial Day. Um, sponsors, you know, you know, potential sponsors telling me, uh, you know, school's out in Texas by Memorial Day. June it just doesn't work out. Larry's going to try to work on some events for us in June. There's one place we want to be, um, in the New York metropolitan area. We'll see if we could swing it this year. And then we'll probably book Milwaukee for September, uh, sooner than later. And, uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, you know, San Diego, I hope, could have hoped that we could shoehorn it. I'm not so sure now. I've got to follow up with Larry, um, he worked with our guests from L.A. to get us a good deal on the Dodger Stadium event and, uh, you know, hope to see if we could have that same magic for San Diego. And again, as I always say, because I'm always fully transparent, so much of the venue, uh, you know, uh, listen, I, I have a, a favoritism towards MLB stadiums, but, you know, so much is dependent on the room rental and the food Um You know, Fenway Park is my favorite ballpark out of the 24 stadiums I've been to. Can't do it. They want like $10,000 minimum food order. Um, San Francisco, great ballpark. Um, They want that $15,000 for the room rental. So a lot of people come up with crazy. I think the craziest, um, in my opinion, the craziest venue pricing was the proposal that I got from the UBS Arena. UBS Arena is the home of the New York Islanders. I'm a huge Ranger fan. But it would have been nice to be at an arena that was like 20 minutes from my house. You know, the rental and what they wanted to charge for parking. The rental would have been double what I paid at Dodger Stadium. It would have been more money than Wrigley Field. Um, it just was not a good idea. Uh, I paid a. I remember I paid a huge rental um, for Tropicana Field. But we did two day events: one a plant sponsor event and one a uh, advisor event. So that's that on that. And um, again, again, go to thatformartk-site.com for further information. I know I'm digressing and talking to you about event management, but uh, that goes into, you know, the consideration. You know, uh, Miami, we had a great event in Miami. Miami, they gave me the room for free because they wanted me to buy Marlins Mets tickets. So that was, you know, a great opportunity. So that's that's really what transpires and. and makes the decision as to where we go and where we can't go to. So hope you enjoyed that talk. Now, talking about, you know, choices, um, you know, outside of hiring a TPA, in my opinion, the most important plan provider out there is a financial advisor. Um, in some ways, a financial advisor is more important than a TPA in the sense that the financial advisor, in my opinion, serves as the ombudsman. So when the TPA doesn't respond back and doesn't do anything correct, you know, does something wrong or whatnot, it's usually the advisor that contacts the TPA. But you know, there's so much to decide. I think there are a lot of ways you know, people get selected as an advisor for the wrong reasons and you know oh they're related to somebody oh they work with my bank that i got a credit line with or you know i met somebody at church or synagogue and that kind of stuff and you know anything a plan sponsor does got to be on, on above board if it looks bad it is bad um You know, I I come from a village where you got people on the school board who have their relatives on the school district payroll and they're like, well, it's not illegal uh, and we abstain from the vote. But if it looks bad, it is bad. Um, You know, uh, government agents make assumptions. Whether those assumptions are correct or not, they make assumptions and I'd rather not make any assumptions. I'd rather not have them think that an advisor on a plan was not selected in a... Uh, you know, free process, uh, free rational process. Um, and I think it's really important for a plan sponsor to obviously pick an advisor who handles retirement plans. Now, you know, when I first started out, even when I first started out my practice, uh, again, I always talk about those days of networking. I, you know, uh, I, 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 I think that the problem with networking sometimes at least in my local areas. I was networking with the wrong people. I was networking with people, small business owners, who would never have a 401k plan because they couldn't afford it. And then you would meet like advisors, and these were advisors who really had no retirement plan business. They didn't see the end, or or they had one retirement plan on the books. And I think that, you know, it always reminds me of Barney Fife. He had that one unspent bullet in his shirt pocket. That's how I used to see these advisors who had like one plan on the books or no plan on the books and they wanted to dabble. And um, retirement plans is not something that an advisor really could dabble, uh, especially these days. So you don't see it as much as you you did when I first started out in 1998 or when I started my own practice in 2010. I gotta always remind myself, I always say 2012. It's 2010 I started um, my own practice but you don't see them as much anymore. But I think a a plan sponsor should be wise to avoid a situation like that. Uh, Plan sponsor needs somebody who has uh, experience and knowledge and, you know, and uh, it's just, it's just really a bad idea. Uh, There are a variety of factors to look at and uh, you know, you want, you know, a plan sponsor needs to hire somebody who has experience working retirement plans. you know, I don't look at years of experience. I look at, you know, again, plans on the books, sophistication, bunch of young advisors who know a lot better than some of these advisors who have been 25, 30 years in the business. That's just, you know, the nature of things. And um, you want to, you know, hire somebody who knows what they're doing and can certainly handle the plan. And obviously, you know, in this day and age, um, again, when I was at uh, that uh, forgotten law firm, um I worked with a plan sponsor that uh, put in all their money in with a financial advisor by Bernie Madoff. Uh, They had a DB plan, put all their assets with Bernie Madoff. And uh, my joke is that Bernie Madoff ruined Ponzi schemes for everybody. Um, You know, there are a few criminals out there that are masquerading as financial professionals. Again, um, I have the unfortunate aspect of working with two uh, plan fiduciaries who are currently sitting in federal prison. For embezzlement and one of those people, Jeff Ritchie, uh, had you Googled him before his lockup, you would have discovered he was banned from being in the securities business by the SEC. Uh, that's 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 a red flag, and you know, it, it, it's I think it's important, you know, there's so many hucksters out there, and just a simple check on FINRA. Or, you know, the SEC websites or state websites to make sure that the firm that you're talking to is the real deal. Um, It's like you always hear these stories about, you know, doctors who don't have a medical license and they weren't doctors. They were pretending to be doctors. And you always say, well, why didn't that person check? Because you assume you take people at their word, and that's always been the biggest problem. You have to, you know, as a plant producer, you can't take people at their word. You know, if you want, you know, I, pu- I, I I push myself out as an arrest attorney. I push myself as a licensed attorney. You go to the New York State website, you will see that I'm currently registered. If you go to the Massachusetts, California websites, you'll see that for those states I'm inactive because um, my practice is in you know headquarters New York. But please check. To make sure that i am who i say i am i'm not trying to hide anything but there are a lot of hucksters out there that you know are hiding something and i always told the story about you know again i'm i'm sitting in my uh, den where there were five feet of water of hurricane sandy and uh before that we hired a waterproofing company and um you know i didn't google the guy's name and whatnot and i would have discovered that the guy who was running the business, but wasn't the principal. His wife was, and the reason he wasn't the principal was because he was thrown. He lost his podiatry license because of Medicare fraud. That would have been something important to to, to discover, and so that's my mistake. But as a plan fiduciary, I can't make mistakes like that because there'll be personal liability involved with it. So you know, you got to make sure that you know the advisors, that the plan sponsors, talk to are, are licensed, or are registered, they're no you know, uh, 50 million complaints, Uh, Bernie Madoff, uh, a telltale sign with him was he custodied his own assets. So, you know, he can make fake statements, which is what he did. Uh, Bernie Madoff couldn't get away with it if he custodied Fidelity. I mean, sure, he could have taken Fidelity statements and uh, doctored them up, but it was less likely. Um, You know, it's more difficult to do that and, uh, you know, obviously people online could check it out with Fidelity and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, make sure the advisor is properly insured and all that kind of jazz. Um, that's what plan sponsors really need to do. And obviously, it's important for plan sponsors to understand what role uh, the advisor will serve in fiduciary capacity. Um, you know, uh, obviously in this day and age, you know, we've gone with the new fiduciary rule and... Obviously, brokers now serve in fiduciary capacity, um, but I still think it's important for a plan sponsor to identify what capacity the advisor will be in, because there's a lot of games being played. Not as much anymore, but I knew a producing TPA where the advisory firm was serving in fiduciary capacity, but in their contracts, they disclaimed any fiduciary role. You can't get away with that now, but you never know with people. People promise one thing and their contracts say another. And that's where the problems come up. And uh, that's where the issues come up. And so that's why I think it's important for the plant sponsor to identify and, uh, you know, understands exactly what the role is and to make sure that it's actually promised in the contract. The proof is in the pudding, which I still don't know what that means. But the proof is in the details. And if the contract says... They're a 321 and the advisor said that they were a 338. Well, here we got a problem. And it, it's not something that, uh, you know, when the DOL comes knocking or risk attorney comes knocking, the litigator, you don't want that kind of issue. And so that's why you want to get what you're promised. And, and that's just the nature, you know, natural course of business. Obviously, I think it's important to understand um, what the advisor's investment style is, you know. Do you really hire a cook without, you know, finding out their culinary expertise? You know, you're not going to bring in a chef or an Israeli restaurant who, you know, just only knows French cuisine. Um, I think it's important that uh, the plant sponsor identifies the investment style that the advisor has and goes along with it, supports it. Um, You know, obviously... If a plan sponsor loves index funds, like so many uh, plan sponsors do these days, um, hiring somebody who's an advisor who only, you know, runs actively managed funds—that that's a problem. It's not a right fit. And uh, you know, it's always it's always funny, uh, you know, index funds and you know, all that kind of stuff. And when you grew up. Uh, as I did in the retirement plan space as a, as a youngster when I was 26, uh, you were told that running index funds were more expensive than running actively managed funds. There was a bias. Why was there a bias? Because little did nobody want to admit. But they pushed actively managed funds because actively managed funds paid revenue share. And uh, that's why there was always a concept, oh, you guys want to run index? It's going to cost you more money. Um obviously with fee transparency and uh, obviously um, realizing that uh, the cost of investments is part of the overall plan expense, uh, now they realize that that is nonsense. That's one of those old wives tales, as they call I don't know if that's the appropriate term anymore, but that's what we used to call them as kids. I don't know if I'll get canceled for that, but it was an old uh, Bubba Midesa, uh, as I say in Yiddish, as a, a phony, baloney story. My mother used to always tell me these balamim says when you turn out as an adult that they weren't true. You know, um, running outside in the cold with wet hair isn't going to get you sick. Touching a frog doesn't get you warts. Um, you know that kind of stuff. Um, if you crack your knuckles, you're going to get arthritis. I, th- I remember that one. And. Uh, um, I just looked up another old wives' tale because someone posted about it. it was it, it was something like from the scene of Knocked Up where uh, Jonah Hill claimed that uh, he got ch- conjunctivitis because somebody farted in his eye or something? Uh, you can't get conjunctivitis that way, by the way. I, I checked that up, but uh, you know it's important that uh, really a plan sponsor understands the investment style of the that they select and make sure that they're okay with it. You know, uh, I like index funds. Uh, I'm not going to hire somebody who pushes actively managed funds if I'm, you know, plan sponsor. That's how I see things, but that's just me. Um, obviously, it's important for the plan sponsor to find out how the plan sponsor will handle the fiduciary process of the plan. Are they going to show up? Are they going to develop an IPS? I mean, I have, I have, uh, I have an advisor out there that, you know. Finally, he's telling me, oh, do you think I should have an IPS for this client? Yeah, buddy, I think you do. Uh, IBS, IPS is a blueprint. It's not legally required, but it's a blueprint. It's like, hi, DOL. Hi, Arista attorney. This is what we you know, followed when we chose the investments in the plan. And we followed it because, again... Uh, an IPS that you don't follow is, is just, to me, just an example of a breach of fiduciary duty. If it says you're going to uh, replace one fund because they have two or three quarters where and they're in the yellow or red F- off the FI 360 report, then, you know, hey, you got to do it. you, you got to follow the process. Trust the process, the 76ers would say. Um, and it's important to know, you know, is this advisor going to show up? And you don't see it as much anymore, but we, we would have advisors who would collect a quarter of fee and never service the client. They would just sit in the background, collect the fee, and never touch the client, never uh, never review funds, never educate plant participants, and they got away with it. And, and we don't see that anymore. Uh, as we, I'm sure there are advisors out there like that, but we don't see them as much as we did anymore. And obviously... Uh, I think it's it's important for the plant sponsor to understand the uh, fee that they charge. Uh, You know, got to benchmark fees, determine the reasonableness. Uh, Obviously, plant sponsors don't have to hire the you know guy or gal that is the cheapest. They just have to hire somebody who um, charges a reasonable fee for the services provided. Obviously. Uh, the fee is going to be higher percentage-wise for a million-dollar plan as opposed to a 50 million-dollar plan, and um, support for the plan sponsor's benchmark fees. You want to pay more because you get more. You can do that, uh, but you know, just look at what a comparable service charges and see if that's reasonable or not. And last but not least, I mean, once a plan sponsor hires an advisor, you can't. You know, set it and forget it. Um, you know, they they have to be reviewed. It's important. Um, make sure they're doing their job. Um, and make sure the fees are still reasonable. So every now and then, a uh, plan sponsor has a fiduciary duty to you know, review their plan providers. I don't see the trouble as much with advisors as I do with TPAs because TPAs do a whole bunch of more work that can land the plan sponsor in trouble. But I think it's important. For an advisor to be still re-reviewed, see if they're doing as promised, um, you know, see how the plan is progressing. I mean, there's certain, you know, tabs. I mean, I have one advisor that I work with here on Long Island, and I think one of the telltale signs of his success is his promotion of look at the participation rate in the plan. Um, When I came into the plan, such and such percentage was participating. I've gone to, again, this is a a school with multiple sites and multiple locations. And he's gone and done the enrollment meetings and the education meetings. And he could say, listen, uh, the participation rate is up by 50%. Uh, The amount of money in a stable value fund has gone down uh, thanks to the addition of the QDIA. So there is... A way there are metrics to look at to see if advisors are doing their job. I, I look at participation rates, I look at you know how much money in a, a fixed account, um, how much you know people are actively investing. Um, when I look at target date funds, are people investing in other funds because that's that be defeats the whole purpose of a target date fund, in my opinion. But there are metrics that a plan sponsor could certainly use to review. How advisors do. And, again, the plan sponsor has that fiduciary duty uh, to do that. And, uh, you know, I always run into Ed Koch. Ed Koch was mayor when I was a kid in New York City, and his famous phrase was, how am I doing? And, you know, advisor doesn't say that, but a fiduciary needs to know that they have to find out how uh, their advisors are doing. So it's, uh, it's part of the process and part of the job as a plan fiduciary. You can't set it and forget it. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of that 41 k podcast. Tune into next week uh, for another episode. And of course, check out that 401ksite.com for further information on all our events. Thanks. Bye.